0: Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Siva Rajah, Surgical Director of the Center for Esophageal Diseases, and Dr. Sunil Kamath, an oncologist in the Toxic GI Oncology Group. Sunil was previously a guest discussing disparities in cancer care and young onset colon cancer, and those episodes are still available. They're here today to talk about the Cleveland Clinic Esophageal Cancer Program. So, welcome, Siva. Welcome, Sunil. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Maybe to start out, Siva, tell us a little bit about what you do here at the clinic.
1: Yeah. Now, once again, thanks for having me on the program. And uh, I'm one of the uh, general thoracic surgeons, and I specialize in esophageal surgery, both in cancer and uh, benign disease of the esophagus. I've been on staff for about 10 years after I finished my training here uh, at the Cleveland Clinic. Very good. Sunil?
2: Yes, I'm a uh, medical oncologist here. I treat uh, all GI cancers, but definitely one of my focuses is on upper GI malignancies, including esophageal cancer.
0: Excellent. So we're going to talk about the esophageal cancer program here today. Maybe Sunil, give us a give us a little bit of a background, just in general, like w- what's involved with the program, and we can talk about some specifics. But give us an overview.
2: The program really, I think, is sort of a multidisciplinary collection of expertise. In my view, you know, I think we have. Um, world-class experts in terms of um, advanced endoscopists, thoracic surgeons, medical oncologists, and radiation oncology, as well, and, and I think that really allows us to do some very novel and sort of unique things in our program that maybe some other centers may not be able to do.
0: See, are there particular things from a multidisciplinary aspect that you think are particularly um, good in our program that that programs really should should focus on on including? What what are the types of multidisciplinary things we can do here that that particularly stand out? So I think that um, the first thing I would say is
1: that, you know, just like everything else in medicine has evolved, there has been significant developments uh, in the last 10 years in the treatment of esophageal cancer. You know, when I trained uh, tra- trained here over 10 years ago, Pretty much we had, you know, a couple of tools. You either had surgery, or we had chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery, or or some combination of those three things. And no matter what you had, you know, for the most part, you got one of those three things. And I don't think it's the case anymore. Now Now we're able to understand that early stage cancer behaves differently than locally advanced cancer than metastatic cancer. So... Things that aren't even precancerous conditions used to get the same operations. Now we're able to treat precancerous conditions in a very organ-sparing way so people can keep their esophagus. Uh, Early-stage cancers, like very early-stage cancers, are now resected endoscopically without having to have any major surgery. We have that kind of expertise here now. And of course, that given that all of these cancers and precancerous conditions are now managed uh, with lesser ther- less invasive therapies, I don't want to call them lesser therapies, but less invasive therapies, we're now seeing a significant rise in um, patients who are undergoing complex surgical procedures, having more advanced cancers, sicker, older. So uh, we've adapted to the demographic of the patients as well as to the nature of the cancer we're treating. So there's been a lot of change in the last 10 years and I think that the, a marquee element of any esophageal cancer program should be that you have to be able to offer therapies to each of these stages, not just uh, you know one
0: or the other. And we had a previous uh, podcast where we talked about endoscopic resections. Is that something that's still relatively uncommon in most centers? It is, so... Um, There are different types of endoscopic therapies, and
1: uh, uh, for small lesions, people have been doing endoscopic therapies for a long time. But for lesions that are sort of intermediate size, and in esophageal cancer, the depth of the cancer has a direct impact on the stage far more than perhaps even the size of the cancer. So having endoscopic submucosal dissection, which is the ability to take out the tumor on block endoscopically with a clean margin rather than just piecemeal is something that most places don't have, don't have uh, have the expertise to do. We have several advanced endoscopists that are excellent at that procedure.
0: So I think that that is something that we offer that you're not going to find in many places. So now what are some of the things on the medical oncology side that uh, have changed recently in esophageal cancer?
2: Yeah, I think for us, I think a lot of it is, you know, we've learned to, intensify therapy for for the right people. We are using more sort of combination chemotherapy um, that at systemic doses than we used to. And I think I mean the original trial that we use a lot for sort of locally advanced for stage two or three disease was the so-called cross trial. And I think we've since learned over the years that the dosing of the chemotherapy in that was probably underdosed at sort of a radio sensitizing dose as opposed to a true systemic dose. Um, and I think we've really modified our practice for those, you know, at higher risk, which is most of the patients we see here, um, to use more systemic dose therapy um, in addition to radiation to try to treat sort of distant metastatic disease, which is ultimately what people recur with and will die of. And I think that's really made a big difference. I think immune therapy has also made a big difference. You know, there have been a number of trials both for metastatic patients and also for Patients who've had a curative surgery where immune therapy is making a, a big difference.
0: What does the the program look like logistically? What does it look like from a patient standpoint? Is this uh, they come to one place and everyone comes to see them? Do you coordinate appointments? Um, how do they how do they make this happen? So I, I think that um, one of the, the things
1: to think about for esophageal cancer is that. In terms of the number of patients who have esophageal cancer, if you, just to put things in perspective, over 250,000 people get lung cancer every year, but less than about 15,000, 15 to 18,000 people get esophageal cancer. So, uh, in terms of the frequency of this cancer, it's actually a relatively uncommon cancer compared to the, the top three, if you will, of, you know, for men or women. That being said, a significant number of these patients also present with advanced or, or stage four disease. So the people who end up being operable or treatable uh, is, is actually a, a significant but a smaller subset of that. So what it looks like for a patient is that we try to coordinate care as much as possible, but we don't necessarily have, we have what's called a, um, uh, uh, it's like a virtual uh, coordinated consult where they get to see all of the people they need to see at the same time. But not necessarily, they're not in the same room where people are coming, going in and out. They may have to go to, you know, um, different offices, but they get to come one afternoon or one morning. And then, you know, we try to do do our best to see everybody they need to see in that one time. So that when they leave, which I think is the most important thing, is that they come in with a lot of doubt and questions. They leave with a lot of their questions answered and far less doubt than they
0: they came in with. I think that's our goal and way we try our best to make that happen. And so that's, that's outstanding because oftentimes patients come in, they're scared, they want to know what to do, and they get those answers. But then, of course, the next question is, when do we start? And so, Sunil, one of the big things, certainly at TOSIG, we've spent a lot of time and, and energy on is, is time to treat, and how do we get people to that treatment once we've made the decisions as soon as possible? So how, how are we trying to address that with esophageal cancer?
2: Yes, that's a, such a huge thing for esophageal cancer, especially because, you know, especially multidis- multidisciplinary care is certainly a great thing, but it definitely adds time, you know. It, ne- it needs more coordination. Um, the staging, I think, also can be challenging for this disease, you know, needing a PET scans and endoscopic ultrasound typically for most patients, um, you know, that needs a lot of coordination. And I think sort of having a good team that's really on top of those things, making sure that they're getting done in a timely fashion, I think is a huge part of that. Because, you know, that's, I think, a big strength of our program is that, you know, we have a lot of resources to both track that as a metric and then also resources to sort of work on those and
0: address those issues as they arise. What kind of uh, research do you find interesting that we're doing here at the clinic? You know, we try to address
1: um, various aspects of uh, of how we treat this, you know, we're not just focusing on how to do this operation better uh, or, you know, how to get better chemotherapy. But we're trying to address each element. So from a, I'll answer that question, you know, from a surgical standpoint and and, uh, perhaps uh, my colleague can answer that from a medical standpoint. You know, one of the first things that we look at is, you know, these are what is considered a low volume but high complexity operation, meaning that, you know, the number of places in the country that probably do 50 of these in a year, you can count probably in a hand. It's not a lot of places that do a lot of volume. We do about 100 of these a year. And I think that these patients tend to be malnourished. They tend to be older. They tend to be more debilitated. So identifying the patient's Fitness level ahead of time is something that we've worked on, and I think that we've come up with our own frailty index to identify these patients who, you know, may not do well with surgery, but then also identified patients who will likely have needs after surgery so we can work on their um, post-operative needs preoperatively. And, of course, the concept of prehab. You know, everyone's familiar with rehab, but prehab actually is a big deal, is if you can make the person stronger before the operation, they're far less likely to have to have additional needs after the operation. So I think on the one side, we've worked on identifying patients and identifying their frailty elements. On the operative side, we've done a lot of work to identify patients who benefits from chemotherapy additional chemotherapy afterward after surgery uh, you know if they've already had chemotherapy do they have benefit if they haven't had chemotherapy who should get chemotherapy after surgery those kinds of things uh, we're currently working on and uh, the results will be coming out soon and just as a sneak peek all I can tell you is that uh, it does defy conventional wisdom you know so, so we we'll, Look out for the results on that one. Oh my mind, yeah. sounds like perhaps another episode coming up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, <laughs> what a teaser yeah. there. Wow. Yeah, there bum, you go. Bum, it's, bum. Yeah, foreshadowing, <laughs> correct. And, and the last element actually is that you know these are operations that can be life altering. Um, you know, we've gotten very good at getting people through that. You know, people do, people rarely die from those operations in, in a place like here. But these are life altering operations where your anatomy has been rerouted to some degree. And it's not only important to figure out how often we're curing people of cancer, but also important to figure out how people are doing after they've gone through this uh, pretty rigorous treatment with chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. So we're actually working on a lot of quality metrics. Uh, we're working on our own Cleveland Clinic uh, you know, esophageal questionnaire to identify various domains that uh, directly affect people with esophageal diseases, cancer and otherwise, so that we can then not only track how people are doing from an oncologic standpoint, but also on a personal standpoint, symptom standpoint, how they're doing. So there's a lot of work being done on a patient-level and getting patient-level data to figure out, you know, how can we be better? Or if we identify a certain element as being a problem for people or the most commonly reported problem, how could we make their life better on that? So those are a lot of uh, projects that we're working on uh, from a surgical standpoint. Maybe Sunil can comment on some work on perhaps immunotherapy and things like that.
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that immune therapy certainly has been kind of the big advance Um first in sort of the metastatic setting, but I think probably it may have even greater of an impact, really, um, for those with stage 2 or 3 resectable disease. And so, you know, we have some data for the adjuvant setting now, um, and we're really excited we'll be bringing a, a trial here um, through um, the ECOG co- cooperative group um, where we'll be looking at combination immune therapy as a neoadjuvant and adjuvant therapy. Um, and I think that really could make a big difference, you know, because unfortunately, despite, you know, sort of, curative intent intervention with a number of these patients, we know that a lot of them are going to recur. And I think, you know, the earlier we can treat people with
0: more aggressive therapy, I think the greater the impact we can have. And in the trial, is this looking at pre-op or post-op or both? Is that that the structure we're looking at?
2: Yeah, it's very interesting, actually. It is both pre-op and post-op. The pre-op, everyone will get both, Um, The randomization, it actually has two randomizations in it which I think is really interesting. Some will get only PD-1, some will get PD-1 plus a CTLA-4 inhibitor. Um, It's nivolumab and ipilimumab. Um, And then some similarly in the post-op setting will also get single agent nivolumab or nivolumab plus ipilimumab. Um, So we'll sort of have, it'll be I think rather interesting to, to analyze after the fact. Um, but I think it's a really great design to answer a couple of different questions at the same time.
0: And then how do our palliative medicine colleagues um, play into sort of management of patients and symptoms and things afterward? Because, you know, as, as, as you mentioned, uh, uh, these, are, these are complex operations and patients come in sick and, and, and there's quite a rehab. Despite your prehab, there's still a rehab period. So do, do we involve palliative medicine in an organized way in this as well?
2: We definitely do. You know, I think um, you know, the surgery certainly is life-altering, but chemo radiation is definitely no walk in the park either. And I've definitely find early involvement of, of palliative medicine is is so important for managing the toxicities of of our treatments themselves. They're they're very harsh on people to to deal with. But if we can support them through that, um, we can certainly make that experience more manageable. Um, so definitely, I think having palliative medicine involved, I'd also say having nutrition involved early has been really helpful, um, you know, as people have very limited ability to eat or swallow during this time, you know, sort of helping patients to navigate that in terms of which foods are going to taste good for them during that time, which foods are actually going to pass down um, through their esophagus during that time. You know, these things seem simple, but they actually do make a massive difference, you know, if we, if we
0: address them adequately. Steve, you mentioned something about not necessarily just working on surgical techniques, but I'm going to ask you a surgical question. And that's uh, the role of uh, lymph node resection. Are, you, are we doing some work in that area?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that uh, there are several elements to an operation. I mean, at some level, this operation uh, has been around for, you know, many, many decades. But how we do this operation has evolved, and you know it went from very, very, very large incisions to you know really small holes with minimally invasive techniques, use of surgical robotics. All of those things have uh, sort of made the return to recovery, return to function much better. But we're also looking to figure out how to. You know about the oncologic uh, effectiveness of an operation in terms of lymph node resection and things like that. Uh, in an esophageal cancer, you know we've written a lot about it, and I think my predecessor also had a significant interest in it, uh, Tom Rice. And that, you know, we're looking to see just because you've had chemotherapy and radiation, many people believe that's already maximum therapy. So why would you keep taking more things than you need to and increase the morbidity? And you know, our own studies have shown that you know adequate lymph node resection. Even after getting, you know, um, chemotherapy and radiation, still adds value to survival, and so I think those are some of the things that we're sort of working on. And many ways we're trying to redefine what should be an acceptable amount of uh, lymph node resection for oncologic adequacy, if you will, in patients who are undergoing what they call trimodality therapy, because it's not common these days to get the early stage cancers um, for esophagectomy because they're now treated endoscopically. The pre-cancerous conditions are treated endoscopically. So the vast majority of patients we are operating are people who've had chemotherapy and radiation. And so this is now the norm. This is the new norm. And so I think our studies are focusing on maintaining oncologic adequacy while trying to Mm. get our incisions smaller, decrease the morbidity. Our length of stay is now somewhere in eight to nine days. And uh, most people are pretty well recovered within, you know, four to six weeks.
0: Now, Sunil, so I guess uh, rare disease, you know, mentioned, you know, 15,000 cases or so. So rare disease, it always makes questions like screening tough, right? But we know, we've mentioned, you know, that if you have small lesions, you can do it endoscopically. It's, it, it's always better to catch a cancer early. Any thoughts that there might ever be effective screening programs for this?
2: Yeah, I think that's that's going to be a tough one. You know, I think any intervention from a cost-effectiveness standpoint is going to be challenging. I do wonder, and this is definitely on a speculative scale, but I definitely wonder about you know, these ctDNA-based technologies that are being developed. You know, I think um, they're certainly very expensive, but I would definitely say from an ease of use standpoint, you know, simply getting a blood test and detecting, you know, genomic material from a tumor at an early stage, I think, is a very attractive technology, um, one that can be easily rolled out, you know, into a primary care setting or any basic lab setting. So I think there's a there's a chance for that. And I think that could be rolled out, you know, on a, on a true population scale, because it's, it's just a challenging disease. I mean, the, the presenting symptoms are not really that different, especially in the early phases, from standard acid reflux, you know. And um, we certainly know that that's a risk factor for this disease, but the majority of people with acid reflux are not going to get Barrett's and they're not going to get esophageal cancer either. So it's, it's just a challenging, you know, if you think about the the narrowing of the pool as you go f- through those two processes, it's very hard to identify who to screen um, with endoscopy or things along those lines. But definitely I think, you know, a blood-based test could be done.
0: Yeah.
2: I think that,
1: uh, the you know, there's, there's a lot of interest in the field for these blood based tests. In fact, uh, in esophageal cancer, and I guess other malignant, solid malignancies, they've sort of coined the term liquid biopsy, you know, and so. Yeah, right. I think that a screening test needs to have the following elements. You know, it needs to be cheap, it needs to be easy to use, and it needs to be relatively, you know, uh, predictive. And I think that these are the elements, you know, uh, right now there are tests that meet some of them, not all of them, and think it's. but, you know, it's a work in progress. I completely envision this in our lifetime that those kinds of things uh, come to play where we are identifying them earlier. And, you know, I think we're going to see the treatment of disease, of this disease, expand on both sides. You're going to find more early cancers that we can intervene on and improve survival and then we're going to find you know that we have treatments that make inoperable disease operable or treatable you know and patients who are you know a stage four disease that are palliative may actually become curable and treatable. So I think that as medicine expands, as our treatment, or the armamentarium of the group increases, you're going to find that uh, we're able to treat a, a larger number of
0: patients, you know, despite their stage, early or late. So tell us a little bit about outcomes mm-hmm. and how our outcomes compare to other places. In thoracic surgery, the Society of
1: Thoracic Surgeons, um, they maintain a database. It's a voluntary database that we submit all our data because we, we like to have feedback to figure out, you know, what we're doing well. Compared to others, and maybe what we're not doing so well, so we can sort of catch up. It was intended as a quality-based um, uh, quality database, and uh, what it also allows us is compare ourselves to how other people are doing. And within that database, while admittedly, not everyone participates in it. You know, we have one of the lowest mortalities in the United States uh, for this operation, and our morbidity is one—you know—one of the lowest. So I think overall, we are a three-star program, and there's very few programs in the country that have three stars in every domain that they look at for esophageal cancer. So, you know, um, it's, it's sort of, I want to take a second to sort of highlight the entire team uh, that makes this happen. It's not just any one person. You know, I tell my mm-hmm. patients, you know, when I come out of the operating room and I talk to the family at the end of the day, I tell mm-hmm. them that, all right, we're halfway there. Okay.
0: So there's a lot more work to be done and there's a lot more people that are going to help. Well, there's good uh, encouraging uh, news as we uh, as we close out. Appreciate you guys' uh, insight on the program, all the hard work you guys do for this disease. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. To make a direct online referral to our Tossic Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org cancerpatientreferrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances.